Now in our 21st year of service to the worldwide amateur radio community, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, your all-amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. This is edition number 1122, with a release and air date of Saturday, August 29th, 2020. Please take the program to your air following the Q-Tone. Now in our 21st year of service to the amateur radio community worldwide, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. Here are the stories for release around the earth as we come to air on this very busy news week with edition number 1122 of This Week in Amateur Radio. The FCC releases a new notice of proposed rulemaking to reinstate amateur radio filing fees. We will have all the details you need to know. Amateur radio volunteers are on the air as Hurricane Laura made landfall. The Hurricane WatchNet logged more than 29 hours of continuous operation. We will have team coverage. The FCC grants temporary operating authority to permit PACTOR 4 for emergency communications. We will introduce you to the newly elected ARRL Chief Executive Officer, David Minster, NA2AA. Candidates are set for the 2020 ARRL Division Elections. We will tell you who is running for what positions. Looking for a new job? The League is looking for a National Club Coordinator. There are plenty of ham astronauts to crew upcoming missions for both Boeing and SpaceX. We will tell you who they are. An amateur radio operator going on vacation with his radios in Greece is detained and accused of espionage. And NASA's Themis mission is investigating the mysteries of Aurora. We will tell you all about it in this week's report. These headline stories will come to you in a moment along with this week's special features. We'll visit with Bruce Page, KK5DO, and get an update from AMSAT and what's new with all of those amateur satellites in orbit. Our technology reporter, Leo Laporte, W6TWT, will answer that universal question, why does my Wi-Fi suck so bad? Australia's own Arnold Benshop, VK6FLAB, will tell you what comes next after you channel your RTTY. Our own amateur radio historian, Bill Continelli, W2XOI, returns with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives. This week, Bill will look at the state of amateur radio in the year 1980 covering the new bands that we obtained that year at the Geneva Conference. And our tower climbing and antenna master, Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, will cover the safety procedure, lockout, tagout, before you make that climb up the tower. That's all straight ahead as North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service, This Week in Amateur Radio, takes to the air right now. Reporting from our headquarters studio here in stormy Albany, New York today, I'm George, W2XBS. And reporting for This Week in Amateur Radio from downtown Syracuse, New York in Armory Square, I'm Chris Perrine, KB2FAF. And reporting from our news bureau in Rochester, New York, I'm Dave Wilson, WA2HOY. And reporting from the Catskill Mountains of upstate New York, where the corn is as high as an elephant's eye, I'm Don Hulick, K2ATJ. From Riverton, Maryland, on the Delmarva Peninsula, this is Michelle Bradley, KU3N. 
And reporting from our news bureau in Fayetteville, Arkansas, where thankfully Laura gave us the brush off, I'm Will Rogers, K5WLR. 30 minutes of solid amateur radio news begins now. Leading off our news this week, on Wednesday, the FCC released a notice of proposed rulemaking in MD Docket 20-270, which implements portions of the Repack Airwaves, yielding better access for users of Modern Services Act of 2018, or Raybombs Act, which gives the FCC statutory authority to collect application fees. Amateur radio licensees would pay a $50 fee for each amateur radio license application if the FCC adopts rules it proposed this week. Included in the FCC's fee proposal are applications for new licenses, renewal and upgrades to existing licenses, and vanity call sign requests. Excluded are applications for administrative updates such as a change of address and annual regulatory fees. With more details on this NPRM and the new proposed fees for amateur radio, we go to Michelle Bradley, KU3N, reporting from REC Networks in Riverton, Maryland. On August 12th, the Federal Communications Commission approved a notice of proposed rulemaking in MD Docket 20-270. This adopted document was released to the public this past Wednesday. Docket 2270 was created to implement Section 8 of the Repack Airwaves Yielding Better Access to Users of Modern Services Act of 2018, also known as the Raybombs Act. The Raybombs Act was a part of the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2018 passed by Congress and signed by the President. Raybombs called for appropriations of $333 million to the FCC in fiscal year 2019 and $339 million in 2020. In Section 8 of the Raybombs Act, Congress instructed the FCC to establish and collect application fees to recover the costs of the Commission to process applications. Under the Act, the FCC must review the fees every two years and adjust them based on the Consumer Price Index. Of interest to amateur radio is that in the NPRM, the FCC states that in order to comply with Ray Bombs, they must now evaluate the cost accrued by the Commission to process an application in the amateur radio service. According to the NPRM, the FCC considers that cost to be $50 per application. While the FCC recognizes that many applications are handled through automation in the Commission's Universal License System, or ULS, the proposed fee takes into consideration the routine maintenance of ULS and the limited instances when staff intervention on an application is required. Under the proposal, the $50 fee would apply to applications for new licenses, modifications such as class upgrades, vanity call signs and renewals, and the mailing out of duplicate licenses. Administrative updates for changing a mailing address will not incur a fee. For the purposes of this proposal, amateur radio is being considered a personal radio service and is being harmonized with Part 95 licensed services, such as the General Mobile Radio Service, which currently has a license fee of $70. As a result, GMRS will see a reduction of their fee to the harmonized $50. The Communications Act and the Raybombs Act differentiates between application fees and regulatory fees. Regulatory fees are normally charged annually and go towards the day-to-day -day operations at the FCC. 
Commercial broadcast stations and wireless providers are two of the industries that pay regulatory fees. While amateur radio is not exempt by statute from application fees, the service is specifically exempt from the annual regulatory fees. Once this notice of proposed rulemaking is published in the Federal Register, the FCC will set a deadline for comments and reply comments. Comments may be filed through the Commission's Electronic Comment Filing System or ECFS Express. More information about this proposed rulemaking is available at the REC Network's website at recnet.com. Reporting for This Week in Amateur Radio from REC Networks in Riverton, Maryland, this is Michelle Bradley, KU3N. The act requires the FCC switch from a congressionally mandated fee structure to a cost-based system of assessment. In its NPRM, the FCC proposed application fees for a broad range of services that use the FCC's universal licensing system, including the amateur radio service that had been excluded by an earlier statute. The new statute excludes the amateur service from annual regulatory fees, but not from application fees. Applications for personal licenses are mostly automated and do not have an individual staff cost for data input or review, the FCC said in its NPRM. For these automated processes, new or major modifications, renewal and minor modifications, we propose a nominal application fee of $50 due to automating the process, routine ULS maintenance, and limited instances where staff input is required. The same $50 fee would apply to all amateur service applications, including those for vanity call signs. Although there is currently no fee for vanity call signs in the amateur radio service, we find that such applications impose similar costs and aggregate on commission resources as new applications and therefore propose a $50 fee, the FCC said. For administrative updates and modifications, which are also highly automated, we find that it is in the public interest to encourage licensees to update their own information without a charge, the Commission said. The FCC also proposed to assess a $50 fee for individuals who want a printed copy of their license. The Commission has proposed to eliminate these services, but to the extent the Commission does not do so, we propose a fee of $50 to cover the cost of these services. The Act also creates a new statutory exemption of filing fees for non-commercial educational radio and television stations. This means that LPFM, full-service NCE, as well as non-commercial translators and boosters will remain exempt from application fees as they are today. For commercial full-service FM radio services, the proposed costs for the original construction permit long-form applications are proposed to be slightly reduced, while costs for minor modification applications would be slightly increased. For commercial FM translators, the Commission is proposing a new fee of $210 to file an application for a minor modification. In the past, there was no charge for the modification application, but there was still a charge for the license application. The FCC proposed a $10 increase to the license to cover for commercial FM translator applications. For commercial broadcast auctions, the FCC proposed a new $575 fee for filing the short-form application. Section 8 of the Ray Bombs Act does not provide any kind of statutory exemption for filing fees in the amateur radio service, which historically has had no filing fees. 
citing the costs involved in the automated process, routine maintenance of the Commission's universal licensing system, and limited instances where staff needs to be involved in the application process. The FCC is proposing an across-the-board fee of $50 for new and modified licenses in the personal radio services, which includes amateur radio and the General Mobile Radio Service, or GMRS. Once again, the deadlines for comments and reply comments will be determined once the notice of proposed rulemaking appears in the Federal Register. File comments by using the FCC's electronic comment filing system, posting to MD docket number 20-270. This docket is already open for accepting comments, even though deadlines have not yet been set. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. Amateur radio emergency service teams along the Gulf Coast were ready to assist as needed after Hurricane Laura made landfall as a powerful and deadly Category 4 storm along the Texas-Louisiana border with sustained winds of 150 miles per hour. With more details on Amateur Radio's storm response, we go to Steve Ford, WB8IMY, reporting from League Headquarters in Newington. Amateur radio emergency service teams along the Gulf Coast were ready to assist as needed after Hurricane Laura made landfall as a powerful and deadly Category 4 storm along the Texas-Louisiana border with sustained winds of 150 miles per hour. The National Hurricane Center predicted unsurvivable storm surge was in the vicinity of 20 feet or greater driving Gulf waters inland into waterways and lowlands. More than a half million people in Louisiana and Texas were told to evacuate ahead of the storm, but not everyone did or was able to leave. By Thursday morning, the Hurricane WatchNet had ratcheted its alert level up to five, catastrophic response mode, and remained in operation even after the hurricane hit. At 1200 UTC on Thursday, the National Hurricane Center was reporting damaging winds and flooding rainfall overspreading inland areas in western and central Louisiana. Laura was predicted to move across the mid-Mississippi Valley on Friday and the mid-Atlantic states on Saturday. In Louisiana and Texas, Aries teams were in standby status for local emergency managers or served agencies, such as the Red Cross, to request activation. Louisiana Section Emergency Coordinator James Coleman, AI5B, said earlier this week that activations would happen on a parish-by-parish -parish basis or on a regional basis as support is needed. The Louisiana Aries Emergency Net activated on Wednesday on 3.878 MHz and 7.255 MHz. The Delta Division Emergency Net was on standby on Thursday. Hamade emergency communications kits from ARRL headquarters have been pre-positioned in Louisiana for such situations since last year. ARRL South Texas Section Manager and incoming ARRL Director of Emergency Management Paul Gilbert, KE5ZW, 
was among those participating in an August 26 ARRL Headquarters Emergency Response Team Zoom meeting that also included section leadership in Louisiana and Mississippi. ARIES members were advised to stay in touch with the section emergency coordinators as well as district and local emergency coordinators for any activation plans. Gilbert stressed that ARIES volunteers should not self-deploy. Six deaths had been attributed to the storm as we go to air. Widespread power outages were reported. Once Laura has been downgraded to a tropical storm, we will focus on helping to gather any post-storm reports from the areas that had been hit. Hurricane Watch Net Manager Bobby Graves, KB5HAV, said. This includes the relaying of any emergency or priority traffic. At midweek, ARRL South Texas Section Emergency Coordinator Jeffrey Walter, KE5FGA, said, We have begun nightly Zoom meetings with North Texas, South Texas, and ARRL Delta Division leadership. The areas directly in the path of the storm may call for mutual aid support. He assured that volunteers would be vetted and provided with necessary information and a plan put in place to define the deployment period. The storm was still packing 100 miles per hour winds. Laura was moving toward the north and expected that motion to continue through the day. A northeastward to east-northeastward motion was expected Thursday night and Friday. Voice over Internet Protocol WeatherNet Manager Rob Macedo, KD1CY, was interviewed on the Weather Channel on Thursday morning. Most staff members, including the ARRL Headquarters Emergency Response Team, are working from home and communicating with each other via email and MS Team. ARRL Assistant Emergency Preparedness Manager Ken Bailey, K1FUG, said, adding that W1AW is ready if needed. With more on Amateur Radio's response to Hurricane Laura, we go to our own Will Rogers, K5WLR. Will? Thanks, Dave. The Hurricane Watch Net logged 29.5 hours of continuous operation in advance of Hurricane Laura, beginning at 1300 UTC on August 26th, and after the storm made landfall. One primary function of the Hurricane Watch Net is to elicit real-time ground-level weather conditions and initial damage assessments from radio amateurs in the affected area and relay that information to the National Hurricane Center via WX4NHC. Since Laura had become a major hurricane overnight, well ahead of earlier forecasts, we opened our net on both 14.325 MHz and 7.268 MHz, said Hurricane Watch Net Manager Bobby Graves, KB5HAV. We did this for two reasons. HF propagation was horrible on both bands, and we wanted to make sure anyone trying to contact us would be able to do so. Graves said it strained resources, but the net was able to get its job done. The HWN remained in continuous operation until Thursday, August 27th at 18.30 UTC, well after Hurricane Laura made landfall in Louisiana near the Texas border. In many ways, Laura seemed similar to Hurricane Michael in 2018 as it rapidly intensified close to landfall, nearly becoming a Category 5 hurricane, Graves said. Additionally, with major hurricanes, you normally have a few eyewall replacement cycles. 
I don't recall there ever being one with Laura, and meteorologists I know agree. Graves noted that on Wednesday afternoon, forecasters at the National Hurricane Center used a phrase not typically heard in order to get a point across, unsurvivable storm surge. That ominous prediction certainly caught on with the media and was widely repeated. Given the terrain for the projected impact of Laura, the storm surge was expected to move well inland as far as 40 miles, with depths as high as 15 to 20 feet in some areas, he said. Throughout its more than a day of operations, the Hurricane Watch Net collected and forwarded numerous surface reports to the National Hurricane Center. Graves said that emergency management in Louisiana checked in with the net on 14.325 MHz to announce its presence on 7.255 MHz. After Laura was downgraded to a tropical storm, we shifted gears and began asking for post-storm reports from those affected by Laura, Graves recounted. We also called for emergency or priority traffic. Graves expressed his appreciation to other stations for moving aside for the net to use 14.325 and 7.268 MHz. Having a clear frequency certainly makes our job easier, and we know those in the affected area greatly appreciate it as well, he said. Graves noted that the forecast for this year's hurricane season is reminiscent to that of 2005 when Hurricane Katrina struck. It is forecast to be a very busy season, he said. When it comes to hurricane season, never drop your guard. Families should have plans in place ahead of a major storm and to factor pandemic precautions into those plans, he advised. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a direct download on our website at www.twiar.net. The FCC has granted ARRL's request for a 30-day waiver to facilitate relief communications in the wake of Hurricane Lara. For more details on this temporary operating authority, we go to League Headquarters where Steve Ford, WB8IMY, files this report. The waiver temporarily permits amateur data transmissions at a higher symbol rate than currently permitted under the FCC's rules. ARRL pointed out in its request that amateur radio emergency service members would be working with federal, state, and local emergency management officials to assist with disaster relief and may use radio modems capable of both PACTOR 3 and PACTOR 4. The higher data rates PACTOR 4 offers are critical to sending hurricane relief communications, including lists of needed and distributed supplies. The waiver is limited to PACTOR 3 and PACTOR 4 transmissions directly involved with HF hurricane relief communications. Section 97.307, subpart F, limits the symbol rate, also known as the baud rate, for HF amateur radio teletype and data transmissions to 300 baud for frequencies below 28 MHz, except on 60 meters and 1200 baud in the 10 meter band. The digital code used to encode the signal being transmitted must be one of the codes specified in section 97.309 subpart A of the Commission's rules 
but an amateur station transmitting an RTTY or data emission using one of the specified digital codes may use any technique whose technical characteristics have been publicly documented, such as Clover, GTOR, or PACTOR, an FCC pointed out in granting the request. In 2016, in response to an ARRL petition for rulemaking, the Commission proposed to remove the symbol rate limitation, which it tentatively concluded had become unnecessary due to advances in modulation techniques and no longer served a useful purpose. That proceeding, WT Docket 16-239, is still pending. ARRL had sought a waiver for radio amateurs directly involved with hurricane relief on HF using PACTOR 4. PACTOR 4 permits a relatively high-speed data transmission, and the FCC has granted temporary waivers in the past to permit the use of this protocol in similar events. ARL stands ready to assist the area potentially impacted by Hurricane Laura to conduct the disaster relief communications, the FCC said. We will conclude that granting the requested waiver is in the public interest. Hurricane Laura has had the potential to cause massive destruction in states along the Gulf of Mexico, and many communications services there were disrupted. The ARRL Board of Directors has elected David Minster, NA2AA, of Wayne, New Jersey, as the league's new chief executive officer starting on September 28th. For more details on the new CEO, we go to league headquarters, where Steve Ford, WB8IMY, files this special report. Minster is currently managing partner at Talentrian Partners, a management consulting firm serving the consumer goods and luxury goods industries. Minster began his career as a software engineer, moving into management at Unilever as a chief information officer of that globally recognized portfolio of brands that includes Elizabeth Arden, Cheeseboro Ponds, Thomas J. Lipton, and others. From there, he moved to fine jewelry manufacturer and retailer David Yerman, where he served as COO and CIO. More recently, Minster served as CEO of jewelry brands Scott K. and Judith Ripka. Minster got his novice license in 1977 when he was in his teens. He progressed from advanced to amateur extra, and he settled on the vanity call sign NA2AA in the 1990s as a way to honor a mentor, N2AA, and the contest station that he used to frequent, K2GL, in Tuxedo Park, New York. Minster's ham radio pursuits have ranged far and wide over the years. His background includes national traffic system training and participation in public service events, as well as contesting from home, club stations, and contest stations in the Caribbean, particularly on the island of Bonaire, where he's a member of PJ4G. Primarily a CW operator, Minster collects unique and vintage bugs and keys. Minster earned a bachelor's degree in computer engineering from The Ohio State University and has a special interest in satellites, digital communications, remote operation, and ham radio computing and software. He has written keyer software for the commercial market and contest logging, packet, and satellite telemetry software for personal use. Building a culture of accomplishment and accountability is what I do best. My initial focus will be working with the board on establishing strategic goals and concentrate plans to navigate AWRL through the digital transformation required for the coming decades of its second century. This includes exciting and innovative ways to be engaged in amateur radio while growing activity and membership. 
In addition to being an AWRL member, Minster is a member of AMSAT, the Frankfurt Radio Club, the Straight Key Century Club, CWAPS, and the North American QRP CW Club. I spend every day of my life, one way or another, engaged in amateur radio. It is more than just a hobby for me. It's my community. It's where I live, where I have built lifelong friendships, and friendships that span the globe. Amateur radio allows me to dream and to experiment. I can't wait to bring my energy and boundless enthusiasm in service to the AWRL. ARRL President Rick Roderick, K5UR, said, We are excited to welcome David as our new Chief Executive Officer and look forward to his progressive leadership. His experience in management and operations, plus his activities in amateur radio, will serve our organization and members well. Minster will succeed Barry J. Shelley, N1VXY, who was CEO in 2018 and who has been serving as AWRL's interim CEO since January 2020. Shelley had been AWRL's chief financial officer since January 1992. The candidates for the 2020 AWRL division elections are now official. ARRL members will choose between two candidates for director in the Dakota, Great Lakes, and Midwest divisions in this year's election cycle, and from among three candidates for vice director in the Great Lakes division. In the Atlantic and Delta divisions, incumbents are unopposed for both director and vice director. In the Dakota division, the sitting vice director is running unopposed, while in the Midwest division, the current vice director is the only candidate for director. The following are declared elected without opposition. In the Atlantic Division, Director Tom Abernathy, W3TOM, who has held the seat since 2015, and Vice Director Bob Famiglio, K3RF, elected to a three-year term from 2015 to 2018, and then appointed in 2019, to fill a vacancy when the incumbent stepped down. In the Dakota Division, Vice Director Lynn Nelson, W0ND, in office since 2018. In the Delta Division, Director David Norris, K5UZ, who's served in that office since 2012, and Vice Director Ed Hudgens, WB4RHQ, appointed in 2013. In the Midwest Division, current Vice Director Art Zeigelbaum, K0AIZ, will become the new director in January, succeeding incumbent Rod Bloxham, K0DAS, who is not seeking a new term. Zeigelbaum has been vice director since 2014. The following are candidates for contested seats. In the Dakota Division, incumbent director Matt Holden, K0BBC, in office since 2018, is being challenged by Vernon Bill Lippert, AC0W. In the Great Lakes Division, incumbent director Dale Williams, WA8EFK, who has held the seat since 2014, will face off against Michael Coulter, W8CI, who is treasurer of the Dayton Amateur Radio Association. In the Great Lakes Division, members will choose from among three candidates to succeed incumbent vice director Thomas Delaney, W8WTD, who is not running for another term. They are current Ohio section manager Scott Yonnelly, N8SY, Jim Hessler, K8JH, who is Vice President of the Grand Rapids Amateur Radio Association, and Frank Piper, 
KI8GW, Yanali's predecessor as Ohio Section Manager. In the Midwest Division, members will choose between Dave Proper, K2DP, a current assistant director, and Lloyd Colston, KC5FM, a past Oklahoma Section Manager, to fill the vice director's chair that Zeigelbaum is vacating. Balloting for contested seats will take place this fall. Votes will be counted and successful candidates announced in November. Unopposed for re-election are the following. Atlantic Director Tom Abernathy, W3TOM. Atlantic Vice Director Bob Famiglio, K3RF. Dakota Vice Director Lynn Nelson, W0ND. Delta Director David Norris, K5UZ. Delta Vice Director Ed Hudgens, WB4RH. The following candidates are running in the 2020 division elections. Matt Holden, K0BBC, for the Dakota Director. Vernon Lippert, AC0W, for Dakota Director. Dale Williams, WA8EFK, for Great Lakes Director. Michael Calter, W8CI, for Great Lakes Director. Scott Yonnelly, N8SY, for Great Lakes Vice Director. Jim Hessler, K8JH, for Great Lakes Vice Director. Frank Piper, KI8GW, for Great Lakes Vice Director. Dave Proper, K2DP, for Midwest Vice Director. And Lloyd Colston, KC5FM, for Midwest Vice Director. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. Coming up, the answer to the universal question, why does my Wi-Fi suck so bad? And now with the latest technology news and commentary from Petaluma, California. This Week in Amateur Radio is proud to present Leo Laporte. Nowadays, I have the Wi-Fi router and two more extenders just to attempt to cover my house. With all of this, I still have Wi-Fi problems. All of this is caused by the proliferation of Wi-Fi devices everywhere. TVs, Google Home, Alexa, tablets, phones, smart thermostats, security cameras, garage door openers, light bulbs, etc. The list goes on and on. This is a universal question. Partly because, and you nailed it, we ask more of Wi-Fi now than we ever have before. The IoT devices, multiple phones, multiple computers. You might have a dozen or more devices sharing that Wi-Fi access uh, I checked myself on my home uh, Wi-Fi network, and I have two networks, one at Euro and one Orbi. I have more than 50 devices. Of course, I'm an outlier, but still, people have a lot of Wi-Fi devices now. Then, of course, your neighbor has lots of them too, right? In fact, if you you know look at your Wi-Fi menu, you may be seeing a dozen different access points. Some neighbors are... Uh, are choosing Wi-Fi routers that say, we're super powerful, double, quadruple, MIMO, and they're interfering more with you than they used to. It all adds up to terrible Wi-Fi. Uh, and and it, it does underscore one particular problem that all Wi-Fi has. It's Wi-Fi's polite. If your access point, here's another access point. 
ha-ha, or another device, ha-ha, on the network, it'll shut up. It'll clam up. It'll wait a random amount of time, then start again. And if it hears your neighbor's Wi-Fi, ha-ha, on the same channel, in the same frequency, it'll shut up again. That's why Wi-Fi is so inconsistent. You might even notice pausing. It's it's terrible for uh, streaming video and, and voice calls. Most streaming video is buffering, so it's not as noticeable. But I have to say, when we do our shows with Skype, we tell all of our contributors, and whatever you do, you can't be on Wi-Fi. You have to get a wired network, and that's it, that's for that reason. Uh, when it comes to improving your signal, I'm going to refer you a great article from Ars Technica, Jim Salter, who is really a guru of networking, wrote it. It's called The Ars Technica Semi-Scientific Guide to Wi-Fi Access Points. And he recommends him a number of things. I'm not going to go through everything in the article. I would strongly recommend you read it because it's got some great tips for improving Wi-Fi. Tip number one, get a signal meter on your laptop or on your phone. If you have an iPhone, unfortunately, the way Apple works, they don't let third-party apps uh, access the signal strength coming in from the Wi-Fi radio. So iPhones are no good for this. But there are uh, soft, there's programs you could run like NetSpot on your Android device. If you have a laptop, Insider with two S's is really good from metageek.com. So once you get these on a portable device of some kind, laptop is fine, you're going to want to make a map of your Wi-Fi signals. Uh, in fact, there's a there's a Wi-Fi mapping app that I use on Android all the time. Let me let me just quickly check my Android phone because off the top of my head, I it's really handy for getting a sense, making an actual like colored map of all the all the Wi-Fi. It's called Wi-Fi Heat Map. And so, if you have an Android phone, this is a great tool. You walk around your whole house. You'll then have a map with different colors of Wi-Fi. Jim says signal strength. Don't get obsessed about signal strength. Anything better than 67, minus 67 dB is, is, is fine. In fact, you can actually have a, if it's too strong, if that negative number is too low, like minus 10, it can actually overpower your system and make Wi-Fi worse. So minus 67 is normal. Because that's a negative number, remember, anything lower, minus 66, 65, that's better. Anything higher, 68, 69, is worse. 67 is, Jim says, the cutoff point. You can also, in one of these Wi-Fi tools like Insider, see which bands are most congested. There are 11 bands in the U.S. on any given frequency. Really, there's only three because you have the middle band and the surrounding bands uh, that each channel uses up. And there's, of course three different frequencies there's a 2.4 gigahertz frequency and there's two five gigahertz frequencies that wi-fi access points can use it's great once you get a map of everything you'll have a much better understanding of where the trouble spots are in your house but also of which frequencies and channels your devices are using most of your devices can be allowed to pick the channel it's it's really i think an exercise in a futility to try to assign channels. The devices will do, uh, and the router will do as, as good a job as you would, maybe better. And they may be moving those around from time to time. The thing to keep in mind is Wi-Fi, and this is a great analogy. I think Jim might have come up with this. Somebody did. Wi-Fi is like a lamp in a room. Uh, you, you get a pool of light from a lamp in a room, but as you go outside the room, that pool of light is weaker. Go through two doors, 
it's not going to make any difference at all. Wi-Fi is similar to that. A single wall will slow Wi-Fi down. By the time you've got two walls between you and the access point, you've got very little signal coming through. The farther away you get, the slower the service will be to the point where you just don't get any Wi-Fi at all. There's also other obstacles. And the worst obstacle in Wi-Fi is humans, those big bags of water that are walking around. If Wi-Fi has to go through a human, it's going to attenuate the signal something awful. And you can verify that with your signal meter standing in front of your Wi-Fi access point. Turn your back to it and move the signal meter back and forth. You'll see you really attenuate the signal. That's one reason you want to put your routers, your access points, and your extenders high up. Have them aiming down over the heads of humans, not firing through humans. That seems weird, but in fact, that does make a difference. Higher up is better for an access point. Now, he said he's using signal extenders. Those are the old school way of expanding Wi-Fi. You'd have an access point, and then you'd buy, you know, Linksys access point from Linksys, some signal extenders. The problem with them is they literally cut your Wi-Fi speed in half. And that's because... Half the time they're talking back to the main access point, half the time they're talking to your device. That means they can only transmit to your device about half the time, half the speed. That's why we've mostly gone to mesh systems. Mesh systems generally will have a separate back channel for communicating to the main access point. That doesn't impede the speed of the Wi-Fi access. So you get a very much better performance as you're getting farther and farther away from the main unit using those Wi-Fi satellites if you have a mesh system. At home, I have an Eero. I really like Eero. I have Orbi. Orbi's probably the fastest, but not as sophisticated as the Eero. I know mesh systems are more expensive, but using a mesh system will give you a much better result, in my opinion, uh, than using uh, signal extenders. There's the advantage also that you can add uh, satellites to almost all mesh systems at a lower cost you buy an extra satellite so you can extend it as needed and generally uh, as long as you position the satellites within good range of the main unit you're going to be able to boost your wi-fi farther and farther out so that works pretty well there are a lot more tips that jim has about Wi-Fi. I would recommend reading that article in Ars Technica for all of the ins and outs. I don't want to spend a lot of time here. I will give you one more um, a point that might help a lot. Sometimes Wi-Fi just isn't going to make it from this end of the house to that end of the house, uh, in which case you might use a wired solution to expand your Wi-Fi. What? Wired to expand my Wi-Fi? Well, you already have wires in the walls of your house. You have your electrical grid. You also have, probably from your cable television system, you have coaxial cable in the walls. Both of those can be used to extend Wi-Fi. I recommend and I've used the TP-Link uh, home line uh, networking or power line networking devices. They're fairly inexpensive. The way it works is you'll have your Wi-Fi access point, your main router here in, uh, let's say, the living room. By the way, that's one other point Jim mentions is put that as central as possible, obviously, to shorten the distances to the radius instead of the full length of the house. But you've got your centralized Wi-Fi access point. You get one of the little power line adapters, plug it in via Ethernet, then plug it into the wall... And as long as you don't have a junction box in between that plug in the wall and another point in the house, you can plug a receiver into the other end. Now these are connected via physical wires, your electrical wires, and it has either a Wi-Fi access point on it 
TP-Link makes those, or another Ethernet jack that you could put into one of the satellites. That's one of the nice things about the old Eero system is you could actually put an Ethernet into the satellites to expand your Wi-Fi. still counts as one system, but uh, it's helped out by the wire in the wall. So that's uh, that's uh, TP-Link. Others make these power line networking. Uh, they're fairly inexpensive, and that's a really good way to expand your network using wiring in the house. I mentioned cable. The coaxial cable can also be used with a system called Mocha, but uh, you'll need to have a little bit more expensive Mocha adapters. Same idea, though, one on each end that's connected via Ethernet to an access point. So before the, all of this, is talks, I'm talking about spending money. Before you spend a lot of money on new gear, it's well worth doing an assay of the house, and try moving things around a little bit. A couple of things to keep in mind. 2.4 gigahertz is a more crowded band. That's the original Wi-Fi band, but it's the one that goes the farthest. If you're trying to get something outdoors like a doorbell, 2.4 gigahertz is almost always the best choice. 5 gigahertz may work better. It doesn't go through walls as well. But for that reason, there's less interference from neighbors and other Wi-Fi going on in the house. So generally, if you're nearby five gigahertz, uh, an access point or a satellite, five gigahertz is preferable. It's when you're far away that you want to go to 2.4 gigahertz. New gear will always improve uh, your connectivity. There is now a new standard Wi-Fi uh, 6. That's 802.11ax. That has some other features to help solve this problem. Uh, eventually, you're going to get more and more Wi-Fi 6 devices that will be able to take advantage of a Wi-Fi 6 router. So maybe the next time you buy a router, you might want to look at Wi-Fi 6. There's a lot there. It's a difficult challenge. And as any radio engineer will tell you, RF is kind of voodoo science. It's very difficult to figure out where things should be placed. But it, you can off, often improve your signal just by a slight repositioning of the satellites, the access points, and, uh, and of course, your devices. Anyway, I'm glad you were here, and I'm here, and I'll be here next week, and I hope you'll come by and bring your friends, too, as we talk high-tech. Leo Laporte, the tech guy. Are you ready for another trip into amateur radio history? I'm Bill Continelli, W2XOY, and I'll be back in a moment with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives, here on This Week in Amateur Radio. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. New bands at Geneva! Those were the good words at the beginning of 1980. WARC 79 was over and amateur radio came out ahead. We kept all of our major HF, VHF, and UHF bands and received three new HF allocations, a 50 kilohertz shared band at 10 megahertz and two new exclusive 100 kilohertz segments at 18 and 24 megahertz. These were the first new HF bands since 1947 when we were allocated the 15 meter band. The only downside was the time element. It would take about two years to actually receive 10 megahertz 
and up to nine years for 18 and 24 megahertz. Amateurs, however, had waited until 1952 to get 15 meters. We would gladly wait again, especially for 200 kilohertz of worldwide HF spectrum. Other legal and regulatory news dominated the amateur world at the beginning of 1980. The FCC proposed a new sideband-only CB band from 27.41 MHz, just above CB channel 40, to 27.54 MHz. For this new CB allocation, the FCC proposed removing the 155-mile contact limit, thus allowing DX contacts, as well as permitting VFOs. A non-technical test would be required for access to the CB-SSB band. Reaction, as you might guess, was strong and divided. HF outbanders, who worked the 10.5 meter band, were in favor. Unlike the 220 megahertz Class E CB proposal a few years back, they could work skip on this new band. Or should we say it would legitimize their present operations? The ARRL and the amateur community were strongly opposed. Many letters in QST pointed out the intrusion of the illegal operations on 10.5 meter band into the bottom part of our 10 meter band. In the end, the proposal was abandoned. The freebanders and outbanders continue to operate the 27.41 to 28 MHz segment to this day. In January 1980, the FCC approved ASCII which at that time was described as an encoding system for digital transmissions that is compatible with most personal computers. Packet Radio had received the official government blessing. Wayne Green, W2NSD Portable One, in a 73 magazine editorial, called the FCC action asinine because it only allowed 300 baud. Wayne pointed out that 1200 baud was the norm in telephone operations and speeds as fast as, wait for it, 9600 baud would soon be possible. Novices and technicians got good news in 1980. They could now operate in Canada. In the past, they were not allowed to operate north of the border because Canada had no equivalent license. Since Canada now had a VHF license, that opened the RF door to all novices and technicians. No reciprocal permit was required. In 1980, Congress is considering a bill to allow 10-year licenses and the authorization of volunteer examiners. The ARRL is watching this bill closely and will keep the amateur community informed. HAMS have been looking forward to the launch of AMSAT Oscar Phase 3. Unfortunately, on May 23, 1980, the launch vehicle failed and it dumped into the ocean. In 1980, the ancient amateur archives was 16 years into the future. I started this series in 1996. So, in 1980, what was a history-starved ham to do? Don't worry, just pick up 73 Magazine. Eric Schalkhauser, W9CI, was writing the History of Ham Radio as a series in 73 Magazine. Also in 73 Magazine, the CB to 10 meter series was still going strong, showing how to convert those obsolete 23 channel CB rigs to 10 meters and, in some cases, 10 meter FM. In 1980, what rigs were on the market? 
In the field of 2-meter handhelds, the Tempo S1, the first synthesized handheld, was facing some stiff competition. Kenwood introduced the TR2400, and Yesu brought out the FT207R. Both were priced at just $395. ICOM unveiled the IC2A and the IC2AT. Prices started at just $200, with no NICADs or touchtone pad, to $270 fully equipped. In response, Tempo dropped the price of the S1 to $260. If you can't afford a synthesized HT, buy a discontinued crystal-controlled rig. The high-gain, 1-watt, 6-channel HT is just $88. The Yesu FT202R, a 1-watt, 6-channel unit, which looks just like the FT207R, is only $125. Pace is leaving the ham market and has its remaining 2-meter handhelds on closeout for less than $125. Inflation has increased prices 300% since 1980. Figure out the prices of these radios in today's dollars. Finally, in 1980, did you get bashed? Did you buy the final exam? Will you ever admit to it? What's the controversy? In 1980, Dick Bash, KL7IHP, published a series of books entitled The Final Exam. They were nicknamed the Bash Books. The actual test questions and multiple choice answers were reproduced verbatim as they appeared on the FCC Technician General Advanced and Amateur Extra Exams. Remember, in 1980, the FCC exam question pool was not published. The FCC had a general syllabus of rules, regulations, and technical data covered on each exam. The ARRL license manual discussed these topics in detail, but no one had published the actual questions and answers until Dick Bash came along. How did he get the questions? Simple. He would go down to the FCC examination site, stand outside the door, and question the applicants as they came out. Cooperative hams, or would-be hams, gave him the questions and multiple-choice answers that appeared on their tests. Later, as the books began to sell in numbers, applicants would mail him the questions and answers that were on the tests. The books were popular, selling at a rate of 1,000 per month in 1980. Dick Bash claimed his operation was 100% legal. He said that since the questions were available via a Freedom of Information Act request, they weren't classified and could be published. He further stated that he was justified in publishing the final exam because the syllabus and license manuals out there did not adequately prepare applicants for the exams. Indeed, FCC records showed that the failure rate at some exam sessions was 69%. Less than one out of three passed. This was before the volunteer exam program. FCC exams were given at the 20 field offices nationwide and at quarterly, semi-annual, and annual examination sites. If you failed, it might be three months or more before you could retake the test. The ARRL and the FCC fought back. QST refused to run ads for the final exam the FCC began rewording and changing the questions on the exams to thwart those who had memorized the earlier questions. Dick Bash claimed that the FCC used coercion
to pressure magazines and distributors not to advertise or sell the final exam. This battle went on until 1984, when the Volunteer Examiner Program was instituted and the FCC released the question pool to the public. Dick Bash ceased his operation. Did he win in principle? You decide. In our next installment, we are going to stay in 1980 and look at four unique public service activities in which amateur radio played an important role. Sadly, in one event, two hams lost their lives. So until then, turn on your TRS-80 and copy all those new packet signals. This is Bill Continelli, W2XOY, for this week in Amateur Radio. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a stream to your favorite digital device on Spotify, TuneIn.com, Overcast, iHeartMedia, and wherever you download your podcasts. In satellite news, Bruce Page, KK5DO, reports that ballots for AMSAT's Board of Directors were mailed to all members on July 1st. They must be received by 5 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time on Tuesday, September 15th. If you have received your ballot and wish to vote, please mail your ballot with sufficient time to arrive by that date. Thanks to AMSAT Secretary Brennan Price, N4QX, for that voting update. A couple of weeks ago, Richard, WA9JBQ, began roving in Idaho through grids DN24 through DN14. He's going to be moving through Montana through grids DN35, DN37, DN38, DN47, and DN49. This is the ARRL propagation forecast for Friday, August 28th. All the sunspots we enjoyed over the last couple of weeks are gone, and our nearest star is blank once again. It's spewing some solar particles in our direction, and they're expected to arrive within the next few days. Despite all this, the solar flux index remains at 70, meaning that we should see fair conditions on 40, 30, and 20 meters. On VHF and UHF, the recent tropical storms haven't stirred up very much in the way of tropoducting, but there is a very active system presently over Minnesota that's sparking a number of band openings on two meters. Look for this system to move east next week. The popular contest station of Tony Radenbaugh, N0NI in Rippey, Iowa, lost some 1,200 feet of tower and 35, yes, 35 Yagi antennas in the August 10th Derrico event. A Derrico is a widespread, long-lived, straight-line windstorm that is usually associated with tornadoes. Winds of 140 miles per hour or greater cause extensive property damage in some areas. Trees falling on guy wires is what did me in, Radenbaugh said. Everything outside of the trees stayed up, including a three-element full-size 40-meter Yagi at 196 feet. A two-element 40-meter XM240 on the same tower snapped. The violent, fast-moving storm complex raked a 700-mile path from Nebraska to Indiana. 
Winds of more than 70 miles per hour hit Chicago, and more than 300,000 people lost power. Iowa was the hardest-hit state, with some 10 million acres of corn and soybean crops wiped out. Residents had little or no warning before the so-called land hurricane struck. The ARRL is seeking a national club coordinator who will act as the primary point of contact for section-affiliated club coordinators. Section-affiliated club coordinators work with clubs to foster and coordinate activities to promote recruiting and training of new radio amateurs, endorse ARRL membership, and impart a positive image of amateur radio within the community. In addition to maintaining lines of communication with section-affiliated club coordinators, the National Club Coordinator will develop presentations for in-person audiences and electronic media. The National Club Coordinator will also maintain affiliated club records and provide information and support to affiliated club coordinators so they can assist clubs in keeping ARRL-affiliated club databases current. This individual will also process application from clubs seeking ARRL affiliation. The National Club Coordinator will design, write, and produce a newsletter and contribute content to QST, the ARRL website, and social media venues. The incumbent will also represent ARRL at amateur radio events, deliver presentations on the work of ARRL, and the value of membership, and interact with members on behalf of the organization. Applicants should have a two- to four-year college degree or possess job-specific skills acquired through the on-the-job training or an apprenticeship. The ideal candidate will exhibit courtesy, tact, and diplomacy on the job and will be able to build relationships and solicit cooperation both within and outside the organization. Other skills include a working knowledge of Microsoft Office, desktop applications, and online video conferencing tools, and an ability to manage social media platforms. For complete information on this opening, see the current job application and description on the ARRL website, which also includes instructions on how to submit a resume. Foundations of Amateur Radio It's the morning after the day before. I've been calling CQ for 24 hours and for the first time in my life, after a contest, I still have my voice. That in and of itself is novel. I also don't have ringing ears. That's a blessing. I have learned heaps and had fun doing it. I made contacts and I heard stations across the globe, and I did it all from the comfort of my shack chair. Before I dig in and expand, the contest I had just completed ran for 24 hours. I didn't sit at my radio for all of it, nor was my radio on for all of it. I managed to have lunch, dinner, dessert, breakfast and morning tea. I snuck in a few naps and I managed to help with bringing in the shopping. My station did not transmit unattended at any time in case you're wondering. My setup consisted of a little 11-year-old netbook computer running the current version of Debian Linux, and the heart of this adventure, the software called FL Digi. The computer is connected to my Yaesu FT-857D via three cables, well, two and a half, a microphone and a headphone lead that combine into the data port in the back of the radio. The other cable is a USB CAT cable, a computer-assisted tuning cable that plugs into the CAT port on the back of the radio. I also used an external monitor to have my main contest screen on and used it to display the main FL Digi window. My license class allows me access to a selected number of amateur bands. 80 meters, 40 meters, 15 meters, 10 meters, 2 meters and 70 centimeters. I managed at least one Ritty contact on each band. 
As I described previously, my radio is set to use single sideband, and the audio from the radio is fed via the microphone socket on the computer into FLDigi that processes the information. Similarly, when I transmit, the audio is generated via FLDigi and leaves the computer via the headphone socket and goes into the radio as a single sideband audio signal. The information in the audio is all RITI, a digital mode that I've described previously. The software is using Audio Frequency Shift Keying, AFSK, simulating the switching between the two RITI frequencies. On my screen I have a waterfall display that shows all the signals that are happening within the 2.3 kHz audio stream that's coming from the radio. FLDigi is also decoding this in real time and showing each decode as a virtual channel in a list. Click on a channel entry and your next transmission will happen at that frequency. If you've ever used WSJTX, this will sound very familiar. That's the mechanics of what I've been doing. So, what did I learn in this adventure? Well, most of Australia goes to sleep at night, at least the ones that do RITI. I have evidence of exactly one station on air, and that was only because they were named in the DX cluster, which, by the way, this contest allows us assistance. Since then, I've found logs from at least two more stations. Local contacts did happen during the more civil hours, and in total I managed 10 of them. You may think that that's not much for, say, 12 hours of work, but that's 5 watts QRP, or low power, RITI contacts, in an actual contest, on a new antenna, from my shack, dodging thunderstorms, and learning to use filters and levels. You might not be impressed, but I'm absolutely stoked. During the midnight to dawn run on 40 metres, when there were double points to be had, which I missed out on, I did manage to hear several stations across Europe, 14,000 kilometres away, which means that I can pretty much count on global coverage with my current setup. Sadly, they didn't hear me, too many competing stations, but I'm sure that with practice I'll manage to contact them too. The software crashed once. That's not nice. It seems to have a habit of corrupting one of the preference files, which prevents it from starting up. That's also not nice. I hasten to add that I don't yet know the source of this. It may well be a dud hard disk sector on my ancient laptop rather than the software, so I'm not assigning blame here. Getting started with FLDigi is an adventure. It's not point and click nor plug and play. More like running a mainframe whilst cranking the handle. But when you get it to fly, there's lots to love about this tool. Other things that worked well were that I'd spend some preparation time getting the keyboard macros right. These are predefined bits of text that you send as you're calling CQ and making a contact. They're a whole topic in and of themselves, so I'll skip past the detail and just mention that I was very happy with the choices I made, gathered from years of voice-only contacts, reading Ritty contest information, and looking for exchange details. From a technical perspective, I used both contest modes, running and search and pounce. Running is when you call CQ. Pouncing is when they call CQ. The running was by far the most successful for me. I'm not yet sure if that was a reflection on how much I still have to learn about levels. One thing that I can say with confidence is that there's absolutely nothing like having a wall of RITI signals to learn how to make sure you're actually decoding something useful. I spent a good couple of the wee hours tuning my levels. I would like to thank the stations who came back to my call and for those who tried without me noticing them. I had a blast. I'm Ono, Victor Kilo 6, Foxtrot Lima, Alpha Bravo. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net.
And now, with his segment on tower climbing and antenna safety, here is Arizona's own Greg Stoddard, KF9MP. When climbing on a commercial tower, we need to be aware of RF safety laws. Exposure has been the subject of debate lately, especially since the guidelines have been introduced into the amateur's vocabulary. There are certain requirements you need to be aware of. Some are required by law, and some are not. This all depends on the tower and how it is loaded with commercial services. For those of you who are not aware of the federally mandated safety guidelines, there's a general set of rules about working safely with sources of energy. Lockout, tagout is a phrase which refers to the use of safety devices to help prevent accidental injury to workers servicing equipment. On towers, lockout tagout can include seals on breaker switches, inline coax switches, or other similar devices. I'm not going to refer to any specifics, but to good personal safety guidelines. If you are working on a shorter tower with perhaps a few paging systems, you need to consider exposure to RF as well as the risk of injury from contact with active antennas. When you are working on or near an antenna or its feed line, you must ensure that it is difficult or impossible for someone to turn on the transmitter while you are on the tower. If you are at 250 feet and your partner is on the ground, another person working in the transmitter shack could easily turn on the transmitter that is attached to your body. It is your responsibility to unplug the transmitter's power cord or remove the fuses, mark or lock the breaker so anyone else not involved in your work cannot accidentally turn on the injury-causing transmitter. Before you start working, make sure everyone in the area is aware of what should or should not be turned on and install some sort of locking device. A cable tie is suitable as a lockout in many circumstances. I sometimes put cable ties through the holes in the prongs of a 115 volt plug to prevent it from being plugged in while I'm on the tower. If I'm working on a hard wired system, I may remove the coax and cable tie it to something inside the cabinet along with something like my car keys to prevent me from forgetting to reconnect the coax as well as preventing it from getting turned on and cooking my fingers off. When working on a crowded tower, you may have to arrange to climb at pre-scheduled off-air times to minimize exposure to powerful RF fields. I will not climb near an active broadcast antenna and prefer to climb near active paging system antennas during off-peak times. This is another reason why I prefer to climb at night. The essence of lockout-tagout is to ensure that the system you are working on is at or very close to a zero potential energy state. Equally important is that the energy supply to the device is locked in a zero energy state by any reasonable means which would prevent a casual user from activating the device while you are working on it. Some simple methods of locking out a transmitter would include shutting off a breaker and locking it in the off position, removing fuses and locking the fuse box shut, switching off a breaker and using a hardware store breaker lock and tag to mark it out of service. For the home-based amateur, shutting off the power to the radios connected to the tower is a good beginning. Unplugging power cords or unhooking coax wires is another. Here's another good reason to have a ground crew. They can also become involved in lockout-tagout. 
Just remember to lower each device to a zero energy state before starting the climb. Sometimes this is not possible, but always plan for the safest climb. After doing it several times, it'll become second nature to you. There's a lot more on lockout tagout than I have time to cover here. So if you're climbing for a living, be sure to review your employer's safety and exposure guidelines. Another place to look for information is the OSHA webpage or your state's electrical safety codes. Remember, you cannot tell if an antenna is transmitting just by looking at it. Direct contact with a transmitting antenna can leave you with an instantaneous and very painful burn. Getting a second degree burn on the palm of your hand at 150 feet on a tower would ruin anyone's day. Also keep in mind that just because a transmitter is unplugged, it may still offer a small voltage difference between the tower and that antenna. It is impossible to attain the exact same ground potential between all the systems on a tower. So the risk of a shock while climbing will always be present. Just be careful when you touch antennas on towers. Remember, tower work at any height can easily become deadly. Clear, sober minds must be in charge. Money spent on books, videos, and climbing gear is well worth the investment. This is Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, reporting for This Week in Amateur Radio. There are plenty of ham astronauts among crew members assigned to pioneering commercial space missions by Boeing and SpaceX. With more information on the new upcoming ham astronaut crews, we go to Steve Ford, WB8IMY, at ARRL headquarters. Jeanette Epps, KF5QNU, is the latest astronaut assigned to the Boeing Starliner 1, a four-passenger vehicle that will undertake its first mission to the International Space Station next year. Others on the crew will include veteran Sunita Williams, KD5PLB, and Josh Casada, KI5CRH. Another crew member is yet to be named. Four veteran astronauts are preparing to launch this fall on the SpaceX Crew-1 mission. They are Victor Glover, KI5BKC, Mike Hopkins, KF5LGJ, Shannon Walker, KD5DXB, and Soshi Noguchi, KD5TVP of the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency. NASA and SpaceX are targeting no earlier than October 23rd for the first operational flight with astronauts of the Crew Dragon spacecraft and the Falcon 9 rocket as part of the agency's commercial crew program. The SpaceX Crew-1 mission will be the first regular rotational mission to the space station following completion of NASA certification. Astronauts Bob Benkin, KE5GGX, and Doug Hurley traveled to the International Space Station on a SpaceX Crew Dragon mission in late May, marking the first time that humans traveled aloft via a commercial spacecraft. Epps, Williams, and Casada will spend six months on the space station. The flight will follow NASA certification after a successful uncrewed orbital flight test 2 and crew flight test with astronauts. The spaceflight will be the first for Epps and Casada, and the third for Williams, who spent long-duration tours on the ISS for Expeditions 1415 and Expeditions 32 and 33. NASA assigned Williams and Casada to the Starliner 1 mission in August 2018. 
NASA's commercial crew program is working with the U.S. aerospace industry as companies develop and operate a new generation of spacecraft and launch systems capable of carrying crews to low Earth orbit and to the space station. Commercial transportation to and from the station will provide expanded utility, additional research time, and broader opportunities for discovery on the orbital outpost, NASA says. As commercial companies focus on providing human transportation services to and from low Earth orbit, NASA will concentrate its focus on building spacecraft and rockets for deep space missions, the space agency said. Some of the ham astronauts will be available for ham radio contacts from the ISS with schools and educational groups via the amateur radio on the International Space Station program. You're listening to America's premier amateur radio news magazine of the air. This week in amateur radio. Sanctions against radio operators can range from malicious interference, operating out of band, to operating without any license at all. And then there's the case of this amateur from Germany charged by Greek police with espionage. The German tourist wanted only to have a relaxing holiday, and like many hams, brought along his radio equipment hoping for portable operations. That is, until his arrest on August 9th. Police in Rhodes charged him with espionage after finding amateur radio equipment in his rental car. According to published reports in the Greek City Times and the Europost, the 51-year-old ham, whose identity and call sign were not given, had equipment that included cables, an antenna, a transceiver, and a laptop, but was not carrying a license from any relevant telecommunications authority. Rhodes is one of the focal points of national tension with nearby Turkey, and police, being extra vigilant, charged the man with spying, saying he violated a law that covers use of electronic communications. The man told authorities he had been on the air with about 250 other hams, most of them from Germany, like him, and had been operating legally on frequencies reserved for amateur radio use. The charges were dismissed in court after authorities said they did not have enough evidence to support their claims of espionage. While the Indianapolis 500-mile race ran without fans in the stands, thousands of amateur radio operators from around the world were able to reach out and touch history in the making. During the week prior to the 104th running of the Indy 500, members of the W9IMS Special Events Station ran their own seven-day marathon to log contacts in honor of the 500-mile race. Due to pandemic concerns, the race was moved from Memorial Day weekend to August 23rd to allow pandemic issues to run its course. Track officials had to ban participation in the last minute and were allowed race crews and officials only inside the two-and-a-half-mile oval. That didn't deter W9IMS Special Event Club. Despite poor, poor band conditions, they successfully operated for seven days, taking check-ins on the most popular of the HF bands. The 500-mile race stats are not in yet, but the crew reported over 5,200 contacts for the first two races earlier in the spring. W9IMS normally operates three weeks of special event stations starting in May with the Indy Grand Prix and then the Indy 500 and then in July for the Brickyard 400. This year, every station who contacted W9IMS for all three races will receive a special certificate or QSL card. 
Check out the details on the W9IMS QRZ page. One of the latest institutions facing a crisis because of the pandemic is a national treasure in the UK with a reputation for being the epicenter of wartime code-breaking. The Bletchley Park Trust has said it lost more than 95% of its income between March and July as a result of the pandemic, and it has proposed a restructuring that would include elimination of as much as one-third of its workforce. Bletchley Park, like so many other heritage organizations, shut its doors on March 19th and reopened on a limited basis on the 4th of July. An estimated 85% of the trust's staff was furloughed and added funding was obtained through the National Lottery Heritage Fund. The museum celebrates the heritage of the codebreakers of World War II who operated there at the Milton Keynes Country House. It has since become home to the Radio Society of Great Britain's National Radio Center, which operates an educational communications exhibit in partnership with the Bletchley Park Trust. It is also home to the National Radio Center amateur radio station, GB3RS. The National Radio Center, however, remains closed until further notice. In a number of media reports, Bletchley Park CEO Ian Standen described the proposed cuts, saying, I had hoped that we might avoid the need to do this, but we find ourselves with no other choice if we are to secure the future of the Bletchley Park Trust. And finally this week, according to a NASA report, a special type of aurora draped east to west across the night sky like a glowing pearl necklace is helping scientists to better understand the science of auroras. Known as an auroral bead, these lights often show up just before large auroral displays, which are caused by electrical storms in space called substorms. Previously, scientists were unsure if auroral beads were somehow connected to other auroral displays as a phenomenon in space that precedes substorms, or if they are caused by disturbances closer to Earth's atmosphere. But powerful new computer models combined with observations from NASA's time history of events and macro-scale interactions during substorms, called Themis Mission, have provided the first strong evidence of the events in space that lead to the appearance of these beads and demonstrated the important role they play in our near space environment. Now we know for certain that the formation of these beads is part of a process that precedes the triggering of a substorm in space, said Vasilis Angelopoulos, principal investigator of the Themis at UCLA. This is an important new piece of the puzzle. By providing a broader picture than can be seen with the three Themis spacecraft or ground observations alone, the new models have shown that auroral beads are caused by turbulence in the plasma, a fourth state of matter made up of gaseous and highly conductive charged particles that surround Earth. The results, recently published in the Geophysical Research Letters and the Journal of Geophysical Research, Space physics will ultimately help scientists better understand the full range of swirling structures seen in the auroras. Themis observations have now revealed turbulences in space that cause flows seen lighting up the sky as a single pearl in the glowing auroral necklace, said Evgeny Panov, lead author on one of the new papers and Themis scientist at the Space Research Institute of the Austrian Academy of Sciences. 
These turbulences in space are initially caused by lighter and more agile electrons, moving with the weight of particles 2,000 times heavier and which theoretically may develop to full-scale auroral substorms. This Week in Amateur Radio is heard on nets and repeaters all across North America and around the world on great repeater systems like our flagship repeater, W2GBO, on 146.940 MHz, serving the Tri-Cities of New York State's Capital Region. This Week in Amateur Radio is produced by Community Video Associates Incorporated. Now for the staff of This Week in Amateur Radio, this is Jeff Rahner, WB2AEQ, saying 73 until next week. This Week in Amateur Radio is copyright Community Video Associates Incorporated. All rights reserved.